Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. WABE in Atlanta. This is City Lights. I'm Kim Jarobes in for Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Coming up today, we'll find out what happens when a legendary hip-hop group explores their love of craft beer. And we'll listen back to my conversation with Atlantucky brewery owners Nappy Roots. Plus, City Lights producer Summer Evans catches up with Atlanta street photographer Brandon May. But first, imagine a world where you could gain all of the knowledge offered in a book, but you didn't actually have to take the time to read the book. Instead, you could just eat it. Yes, eat the book. This whimsical world is the setting for Oliver Jeffers' award-winning children's book, The Incredible Book-Eating Boy. The picture book has now become a musical at the Alliance Theater, and it'll have its world premiere on the Hurt stage beginning next week, July 13th. To celebrate, the Alliance Theater has partnered with Children Read, a nonprofit organization that encourages literacy and distributes books to those in need. Children Read President Cindy Jarrett and the Alliance's Dan Reardon, Director of Education, and Associate Artistic Director Chris Moses recently spoke with City Lights host Lois Reitzes. Moses began with a synopsis of the book. The children's book follows this young boy, Henry, and in typical Oliver Jeffers fashion, he just accidentally discovers that he can eat a book and gain the knowledge. So once he happens upon this, this skill, he gets greedy and wants to become the smartest boy in the world. So it's not enough to just eat a page or, or even eat, you know, a chapter. He starts eating and swallowing books whole until things start to go really badly for poor Henry. <laughs> Both his digestive tract kind of rebels, but also all the knowledge ends up getting jumbled up in his brain. So he's no longer the smartest boy in the world. Everything is mixed up and he's not feeling well. But at the end, he discovers that he could still gain all this knowledge if he starts reading. It just might take a little bit longer. So that in short form is the book, but the play takes this and in a, in a, it fleshes out that story quite a bit. So, Why did the Alliance want to adapt this book into a musical? This is part of our ongoing partnership with the High Museum of Art, which started in 2016. We discovered that 
we could harness our individual expertise and do something really special by celebrating children's picture book art. And the high was going to feature the original works of art in a full exhibit with the works hung low enough for children to really engage with and enjoy. And at the same time, we would produce a play inspired by one of the artist's work. So over the years, we got to work with Eric Carle and Myra Kalman and the late, great Ashley Bryan and Andrea Pinckney and all these heavyweights in the picture book world. And this year, Oliver Jeffers was the artist that, that we collectively wanted to feature. So we knew it was going to be a Jeffers book. And this one, this is kind of lesser known Jeffers. <laughs> it's sort of like an earlier book, but it's so theatrical and so funny. And it's such a great connection to the decades of work we've done using theater as a tool to impact literacy. So I thought this would be the perfect piece to adapt into a play. And eventually that turned into a musical. So that, that's why we landed here. Okay, Cindy, this seems like the perfect marriage for a children read partnership with the Alliance. Would you tell us more about your organization? Oh, yes. So Children Read is about nine years old. And what we do is we collect books used and new books for babies through kindergarten. And our mission is to increase early literacy by getting books into the hands of children. So we do this by donating the books to the Title I pre-Ks in DeKalb County and Atlanta Public Schools, as well as the daycares, um, in the Sheltering Arms, Head Start, Easter Seals daycare programs. We read to the children, at least we did <laughs> before COVID, <laughs> and every child in the pre-K gets a bag of books to take home and keep, and it's about eight books. So you, you've been with the organization since its inception? I started about a year or two after it started. Uh, was started by Marlene Zeiler. She was the former owner of Tall Tales Bookstore in Toco Hills. And she has a wonderful story of just getting ready to retire and sell the bookstore at the age of 80. Not the kind of person who could just sit still. And she actually heard a story on NPR about a woman on the West Coast who was doing this type of program. And Marlene contacted her and decided, well, I could do that here in Atlanta. So she started with friends and colleagues, and it's just grown. And I wondered about the kind of feedback you've received over these years. I mean, to give a child a bag full of books or a stack of books, this is not a computer game, this is not a screen. What have you heard from kids and parents or their caregivers? It's really exciting to be able to go into the classroom and read to the children and then hand them their bag of books. These children are so excited. And our goal is to give the books to the two children who don't have access to many books. But of course, in a classroom, you have a mixture of economic standings in the families. And it doesn't matter. The children are all very excited to get their own books and be able to start their own libraries. The story I love to tell is 
we recently got feedback from a teacher who said when she handed out the bags, because of course we couldn't be there because of COVID, one of the little girls cried. Oh. He was so happy. She just cried. Okay, and, now I'm going to. <laughs> and it was really touching. When we were able to go into the schools and talk directly to the, you know, a little bit more with the teachers, they told us stories about children who perhaps were in shelters and their parents just didn't have the ability to keep a lot of books not just the financial ability, but there wasn't room in the shelters for them to keep a lot of books. And they often had to move from place to place. And so they could only take what they could carry. There are many stories like that. Oh, that is so fantastic. And your organization is entirely volunteer, isn't it? Oh, yes, we are all volunteers, and the volunteers just absolutely love what they do. I should say what we all do, because I'm a volunteer also. Whatever money comes to us goes to pay for bags and labels and that kind of thing. And we are very fortunate to be able to have a very generous landlord who is not charging us rent. Wow. So we don't have to worry about and concentrate on fundraising. We can focus on book raising. Oh, great. Chris, the symbolism behind Henry eating books is such a wonderful way of looking at how books nurture us, our intelligence, although we ingest them in ways that don't necessarily cause stomach problems like Henry develops. How does this story also address the importance of hard work and and patience? The, The play really delves into that quite a bit. So we commissioned a fantastic playwright, Madri Shaker, who's so funny and so thoughtful about how she wanted to approach this. And we thought about like, what is that journey from intrepid reader to someone who really develops a love for reading? And she met with some specialists from Georgia State, some of our colleagues who who teach reading and really delved into the idea behind developing a reading brain. And and we all know, and Cindy can attest that, that young people, this is not just a natural occurrence that you end up knowing how to read. It's actually quite miraculous, all of the things that happen neurologically to make that possible. So we really wanted to honor that. And throughout the course of the the play, there are all these people that Henry's encountering that help him discover a, a real love for reading. And that's following his own curiosities and his interests, the patience that is family shows to him, that his friends show to him, that an artist that he meets at the end of the play show to him. So all of these things are really highlighted throughout the play. Um, And you'll see there's a gorgeous scene where little Henry is starting to sit down and sound out and read these words out loud for the first time that is is really really moving and that would not have happened without all of these people and all of the ways that they are encouraging him throughout the play oh now i would think given the 
tie with the High Museum and Oliver Jeffers' artwork that your set design must be wonderful. I, can you tell us a bit about the set and also the production? How does Henry eat the books on stage? <laughs> Oh, Lois, you have to come. I can't give away all the tricks. But what I will promise, there will be eating, actual ingesting of of things in this book or in this play. Yeah, the the set honors Oliver's artwork beautifully. Kat Conley designed the set and painted it and painstakingly echoes the, the work that Oliver has done and references his own catalog. It's really spectacular. And then the props in here, there's a lot of magic and, and fun. And again, we wanted to make sure that we track that journey of eating a single bite of paper to a whole page of paper to an entire book to multiple books. So there are all these <laughs> different, I mean, you should have been on the, the production meetings where some of the funniest things I've ever seen. There are all these like people putting their heads together confounded by that exact question. How are we going to do this? How are we going to have him eat a corner of a book? How can he eat a whole book? How can he eat multiple books? And and it was just a fantastic problem to try to solve. And how can we keep children who are attending the show from not going home and eating books? (laughs) Well, I don't want to give too much away, but there is a giant vomiting scene that I think might might, uh, uh, you know, keep them cautious about trying this at all. Oh, good idea. So I read in some of the prep material that the songs are delightful. Uh, I think the director described them as earworms. Can you just tell us a couple of favorites? Gosh, Lois, Beyond Earworms. I I Ate a Book is a song (laughs) that is (laughs) unequivocally like the song of the summer for me. I cannot stop listening to it anytime. I've heard it a thousand times when I'm in rehearsal. I can't stop jumping around, dancing to it. It is brilliant. And the music was composed by Christian Magby, who's an Atlanta artist who is just out of this world talented. And he has a lyricist partner, Christian Albright, who worked on the lyrics. And he, Christian Magby and Madri together were just this formidable team. And now Jamil Jude is is our director. It's just a fantastic group of artists in that room bringing this to life. But yeah, earworms to burn. Like you, you, I I can't get these songs out of my head, nor do I want to. (laughs) Tell us about the tie-in with children read in terms of the book drive. So we were connected to Children Read through one of the fantastic volunteers that Cindy was referencing. And it's actually another Cindy. Cindy Reedy had talked to me about Children Read. And I just thought it was the most amazing organization. And we knew we wanted to do some kind of book drive with this play. And my colleague, Kristen Silton, had this wonderful idea because there's a the picture of Henry on the cover of the book. And it's also the show art for our play has him with a stack of books in his mouth. And it's just such a funny image. But she had this idea if we had a cutout of Henry's big mouth, you could literally feed him a book and drop it through his mouth, which sounded like 
so much fun for kids. So we produced these, (laughs) you know, these, these cut out Henry's where you can stuff books in his mouth. And that became the idea. Let's get these all over town. And then we reached out to children read because we knew that they were, they were doing such wonderful work in terms of distributing these books. And that led us to the partnership to set up at various bookstores around town. And the idea is, can we foster not only a love for reading, but, but really a love for giving these books to people who may need them, who may not otherwise have them. So this culture of philanthropy and giving back and and providing these books in a really fun way. And in exchange, the kids who drop off a book, who feed Henry a book, will get a free ticket to see our show. Ooh. Cindy, what kinds of books would you welcome people donating? Yes, Children Read collects books from Uh, babies, little board books, all the way up to kindergarten age books. So picture books, um, books about alphabets and animals and just anything you can imagine and new and used books, but uh, suitable for young children. It happens that this morning I picked up um, three of these drop boxes to distribute and my contact at the Alliance Theater. Margarita Kumpelmacher. Margarita, yes. We have several drop-off locations around Atlanta, but three of them are independent libraries. And so she and I decided that that's where we would put these boxes. And so I distributed them this morning and they are so clever and so adorable. I just can't begin to tell you. And when a family donates a book at one of these drop-off locations, they will receive a free child's ticket to the show. And also, if someone doesn't get to one of these drop-off locations, there will be a book drop-off at the theater if someone just wants to go directly to the theater to get their tickets. And Chris is right. You just, it's so much fun. You go up to the box and this Henry's mouth is wide open (laughs) and it's inviting you to just put a book in the slot. And the uh, owners of Tall Tales Bookstore in Choco Hills, Brave and Kind Books in Decatur, and Virginia Highland Bookstore in Virginia Highland are all very excited to be drop-off locations for this particular project. And I would imagine you'd also welcome books that touch upon diversity, even for these very young children, picture books that show representation of all different backgrounds. Absolutely. And it's very exciting for us to see how books have been representing our community in the last few years, much better than when I first started. And I'm a retired preschool teacher and much better than those days. We have such a variety of diverse books and characters and people and writers now, and um, we love it. We just can't get enough of those. Cindy Jarrett, president of Children Read, and Chris Moses, director of education and associate artistic director at the Alliance Theater. The incredible book-eating boy will have its world premiere on the Hurt stage July 13th and runs through August 14th. More information about the show and the corresponding book drive is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. 
In a moment, members of the legendary hip-hop group Nappy Roots share details on Atlantucky, their Castleberry Hill brewery. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes, and it is great to have you along. What do you get when you mix craft beer with a renowned hip-hop artist? Well, members of Atlanta-based Nappy Roots hope the formula equals opportunity. Atlantucky Brewery opened in February in Castleberry Hill, and back in March, I caught up with rappers Skinny DeVille and Fish Scales to learn about their aspirations for the brewery. DeVille began by explaining his personal connection to Atlanta. I've been living in Atlanta for uh, about 12 years now. Uh, I've been coming to Atlanta since 96, recording with our uh, group Nappy Roots. And um, Scales came to Kentucky on a, a basketball scholarship and we all met at Weston. So um, we started in Kentucky with Nappy Roots and then um, just to be closer to the music scene and the industry that we were a part of, I moved my family down to Atlanta. And so I've just been living here, raising my family for the last 12 years, figuring out what the next moves would be from a rap career as an, you know, a grown up adult. <laughs> I like it. Well, will you share a little bit about just your history of your love of beer. I know you guys started home brewing, but when did you really just fall in love with beer? Man, my recollection goes back to college. You know, when we were um, in Nappy Roots, where I was hung out at the studio, and you know, I was drinking Michelobes and things of that nature. I, I think my other compadres are drinking Pabst Blue Ribbon and some other <laughs> things. Scales is trying to drink some higher end beers at the time, and um, so we've always kind of had beer in our life. I would say. Um, just as college students up to adults. Nappy Roots, uh, we always would um, have beer on the rider. Scales could probably elaborate a little bit better on how we actually transcended from actual rappers into actual brewers. But beer's always been in our DNA. Yeah, I mean, as college kids, you know, beer is definitely part of college life. It's a cheaper beverage for one. That's why a lot <laughs> of college kids drink it. But um, for me, I always like being the guy who walked in the room with something with a different drink than everybody else, you know, a mm. different beer. I felt like that said a lot about who you are, you know, what you bring to the party. But uh, it wasn't until probably 2007 when um, I was living downtown Atlanta and this a store um, right under the, the condos I was living in. And they started bringing in different kinds of beer. And I remember just buying one, I think it was a Session Ale and I, I bought it, it was a dollar and 50 cent. And as I was checking out, 
the guy at the front asked me, he said, yo, if anything else you want, just let me know and I'll order it. And that was the first time I even realized that I could get more than just what was on the shelf. Right. You know, was, I, I realized that you can dive deeper into this rabbit hole of beer. And so I just started seeing different beers popping up. I seen a beer for $18 one time, just one single <laughs> bottle of beer. And I had to try it. Like, what is it about this beer that makes it $18? And so, you know, it's just little moments like that just drove me down the path of trying and searching for different beers. And I always knew if I could really introduce Skinny into the journey that I was going on. You know, I know he likes nice things. We always agree on good food, you know, different nice things. And that finally, uh, later on, as we was doing our podcast, Nappy Hour, we had a segment where we would do the beer of the day. And, you know, that kind of led to me introducing different beers to Skinny. And since then, we've just been on the journey. And also another moment is when we was on tour, I was given the job to find breweries before the show that we can go to and promote our show that night. Probably get 50 to 100 extra people coming to the show just by going to a brewery and hanging out. And after doing that enough times, you know, you show us something enough times, we're going to figure out how to do it. <laughs> and, and we just caught the love. We caught the bug for it. And eventually that led to us brewing in my garage. And we really was all in at that point into just brewing beer. What was the first beer that you guys brewed in the garage? <laughs> it wasn't beer. <laughs> it was mop water. <laughs> I don't know if you can brew mop water correctly, but that's what it was. It was a d disaster. What were you aiming for? I think it was a pale ale. And it just, yeah. it just, it wasn't the color of mop water, but it tastes like <laughs> mop water. Like it was just, it wasn't good. And the second yeah, was one wasn't good, good either. <laughs> the second one was worse, I think. <laughs> the second was worse. But it wasn't till the third beer. Um, yeah, the first one was a pale ale. The second one we tried to make a um a pumpkin. A pumpkin, a pumpkin porter or something. Like a harder beer. We shouldn't have been trying to make that kind of beer as our second beer. And it failed too. It didn't ferment. It never mm. got right. So it wasn't till the third attempt that we actually made something close to a beer. Well, you guys have certainly progressed since then. One of your first partnerships was with Monday Night Brewing, right? That is correct. We did a uh, front porch pale ale. Mm. Um, and it was a 40 IBU. It was a nice golden color. And um, it was around the celebration of our album, Another 40 Acres. You know, that experience in itself was kind of surreal because we had just been talking about Monday Night and the, the, the roommate of the brewer stopped by our podcast at the time and he was like you know i know i know the brewer if you want to meet him i can hook it up and we was like yeah we would love to and so the next day we met with monday night and then the following day they're like yeah just, we'll just do it tomorrow and we kind of looked at each other like really and like well that was fast <laughs> and so we shot over the next day and the next day we were making beer with monday night that's when we actually really put the the tire to the pavement they kind of educated us as we were brewing the beer instead of just going and taking the tour for two drink tickets and drinking beers and leaving, you know, now we're able to actually understand the process. We check back in with them uh, occasionally to see how the beer was going. And we made a big event at the end when the beer was released and was able to perform some of our songs as Nappy Roots um, at the brewery while we were drinking our beer. And so <laughs> that kind of really gave us the idea to say, okay, this is really, this could be bigger than just having a collaboration idea. We can really possibly use our brand and name Nappy Roots and get to a whole nother audience that possibly we weren't, we haven't been hitting 
and it's just rappers. You know, there's a whole beer industry out there that we kind of were kind of tiptoeing around, but to actually produce something for that market and still be near the roots, that was a play that we um, thought was a fresh idea and to uh, put the two together and mix hip hop with craft beer. Now you're reaching a whole segment of consumers that you didn't maybe weren't necessarily in the same room before. The light bulb went off of both of our heads like, okay, you know, and that was 2016 when we started that idea. And you guys didn't dive lightly into the entrepreneurial endeavor. You did your research and you went on a road trip of breweries, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, as we toured uh, as Nappy Roots, like Scales of Santa, you know, we were hitting a brewery per city before the show. And we were on the road. You know, we were as Nappy Roots before the pandemic. We're doing 75 to 100 shows a year mm. um, as independent artists. Different city every day. There's a lot of breweries out there that most people... If you live in your own city, you will not get a chance to uh, see because you just you're, you're stuck in the old nine to five of your own life, you know. Right. And so, you know, some people take pil pilgrimages to different cities to try beer, but that's our job is to travel. So um, we learned a lot by talking to different breweries in the northwest, in the southwest, in the northeast, in the southeast, you know, the Midwest. So there's all these breweries are doing different things and having different styles to getting the grain from different places, different hops. They have different techniques. They're using different equipment. And so we just kind of just studied all of that as we were going just to get on the job training in a sense. And, you know, we're talking to the head brewers. We're asking them questions. They're looking at us like, wait a minute, how do you know about using <laughs> ABVs? And, you know, and we're just kind of really trying to get into the technique and the equipment they were using. And so we took that serious. And I think that is what allowed them to sit and kind of give us the spew from their side of things a little more better because it wasn't just, ah, yeah, 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 let me drink the beer. It's like, no, how did you make this beer? And that was for three or four years we did that. Mm, good research. Well, when you finally got ready for your own, you guys landed in Castleberry Hill, which is a, a part of town that I absolutely love and feel is somewhat underappreciated. Why did you guys decide on Castleberry Hill? Actually, Castleberry Hill kind of found us. While we were making a Black is Beautiful beer with Scofflaw to support the Black Lives Matter movement and, and a lot of the things that were happening um, during the pandemic, we got a call from my good friends at Monday night. And um, they said they have a situation that you guys probably would be interested in. And at this time, we weren't touring because of the pandemic. So we really had a lot of idle time. And we were just kind of in the garage making beer. So we stopped what we were doing at Scofflaw, sat down with Jonathan Baker at Monday night. And he said, I got this opportunity for you guys that you might want to you know, check into. And so pretty much a realtor who represents uh, the Russell family and uh, uh, their whole uh, real estate endeavors is also the the same one to help Monday night get situated in Lee and White down here in um, the southern part of Atlanta. So anyway, Realtor knows and represents the Russells. Mr. Russell um, has an event space because of the pandemic shutdown. And he says he wants to open a black brewery there. So immediately the Realtor calls Monday night. Monday night, they, you know, they know, I'm sure they know a lot of black people that are making beer, but they called us first and said, you know, thought this would be a direct, you know, fit for us. So we took the meeting sat with them, saw the space, just looked at it and said, this is an opportunity that we cannot pass up on. I do not want to hear about us talking about we need to open a brewery ever again. <laughs> and so we wasn't ready for the situation, but we were heading in that direction. You know, we had found an attorney. We had had an accountant. These things, we were going and building a business plan before we saw the space. But when we saw the space, we felt like this was a perfect fit for what we were in the direction we were headed. Maybe a little bit premature, but like I said, it's opportunity that we couldn't pass up on. So uh, we changed our sites. 
And September 7th of 2020, we got the keys to the place and been building it out for the last year and a half, getting it ready. We've been throwing events in there to keep the kind of the dollars rolling in, but just honing in on the equipment, building it out and making it ready for actual brewery. Kind of like what we've been seeing as we've been traveling, just getting everything where the universe, you know, aligns the stars for you when you're ready. Even if you're not ready, sometimes it does it. And we just took advantage of the opportunity when it knocked and um, haven't looked back. But there was never a for rent sign on the building. Like really? never, there was never for rent sign. It was like, we want you guys to do it. We was like, okay, let's do it. Don't care what it's <laughs> going to take. And then we just did it. And, and that was it. You know, so I think the building found us kind of how I kind of tell people about the space. This like really it. found us. Yeah, it sounds like it. I haven't had a chance to go yet, but from the pictures I've seen, it looks like you're making art a priority. Yes, ma'am. Um, we have 6,022 square feet of space. You know, the, the space is amazing. It came, Mr. Russell's father, H.J. Russell, uh, spent about $1.5 million on the space just because he could. <laughs> and me and Scales, uh, I, I laugh with him. I'm like, you know, if it was up to us, we would have never had this space this nice. You know, we would have cut corners on the wood right. trim. We would have cut corners on the light bulbs. You know, we would have cut corners every which way we could to save money because, again, like, you know, we're rappers. And to open a brewery takes, you know, it takes a lot of money. But to have this space so nice before we got there is a blessing. So we just took advantage of the space and we um, fitted it out with uh, our own furniture. We put the brewery in the back, but the walls were so amazingly white that we had to put something on them. And to put local artists on the walls and make the whole space about beer, art, and music makes the vibe of Atlantucky what it is. And as soon as you get in there, it's just the warmth of these local artists on the walls are enough to make you want to stay and have a few beers. Do you have a curator or someone who's helping you find the right artists? Yes, we do. Um, his name is Ian. And this is our fourth art exhibition that we've had. So we've actually gotten better at putting art on the walls and fine-tuning what we actually are presenting now is the fourth rendition of art and the idea in itself. And at this point, we kind of just kind of let him do what he does. The first one or two, we kind of checked in with us and asked if this is cool or what we were trying to do. We kind of talked to him about the themes of the art exhibit itself, but we kind of let him kind of bring in the local artists that he has relationships with. So you guys have art, you have beer, and you have music and events. I know you guys have played there already. Are there any other musicians or musical events on the horizon? Yes, actually. We've had open mic nights. We've had, I don't want to call them concerts, but performances from various artists. We also have comedians as well. That's fantastic. There's such a lack of space in this city for comedians to perform. Yeah, that's what they've been saying. So we hopefully we can um, create this uh, a nice little safe haven for up and comers to try their set as well as, um, you know, well-known comedians. I think beer and laughter is they go hand in hand. Yeah, we're big fans of comedy, stand-up comedy. As we tour as Nappy Roots, we always play comedy, you know, the soothers in between shows. So, like, we would love to become known for, you know, one day a week you can come here and enjoy good comedy as well as, like Skinny say, the big guys come through and, and get some of their jokes off. I think that is lacking in Atlanta. Atlanta yeah. should have definitely more places where comedians can get on stage and just let some of their jokes loose. And is there food available? Is, is it just pop-ups? Uh, we have vendors throughout the week. We have four different vendors, but we also have different pop-ups that come. And it's the same as with the comedians. Like, you know, a lot of people have dreams of owning restaurants, but they don't know, they don't have a place to really get started. So 
we're just using our platform as a showcase for different people who cook. That's great. It's good for the city. Obviously good for you guys too. Well, before we close out, tell me about what beers you guys have brewing right now. Uh, right now, the first beer we ever brewed in this commercial space at Lantucky was Mile High, which is a pale ale, about 6.5%. We're very proud of that beer. If you come in, I, I recommend that be the first beer you try. But we also have Atlantucky Mud, which is a stout. We have Hateville Hef, which is a Hefeweizen. You know, I would twist on Hefeweizens, which is a German-style beer. We have a NEIPA. You kind of have to have that these days in the brewery. People love yeah. their IPAs. We just finished the Blackberry Wheat Ale that's oh. going over well. Yeah, people are very interested in fruited beers because we deal with a lot of non-beer drinkers. We have a lot of people who come in who aren't familiar with craft beer. So we're working on good introduction beers. That's what we're kind of working on now. So we have a strawberry blonde ale that we just did yesterday. So looking forward to that. Well, that is fantastic. Congratulations. And I've really enjoyed talking to y'all. Well, thank you. We look forward to providing great opportunity and service and creativeness that can help, you know, show the next level of entrepreneurs that, you know, we're not excluded from the craft beer just because you're black. You know, um, people of color like craft beer just like everyone else. And once they find a place that they can call their own, I think it's going to be beneficial for the whole ecosystem as a whole. Life is good, life is good, life is good. Life can be amazing when you view it like you should. I believe my fellow humans will continue this path. All lives matter, but all lives ain't treated this bad. I got faith in all of y'all who have faith in God. Whether you come or not, just know on earth you still play a part. I hope I get to right my wrongs before my time expire. If I don't, just know I thought about them down to the wire. And I promise. I'm just trying to do Atlantucky Brewery owners and members of Nappy Roots, Skinny DeVille, and Fish Scales. More information about their Castleberry Hill Brewery can be found on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of the Arts, where we get to hear from local artists in their own words. I'm Angela Faustina. I'm a local artist known for my sticky sweet paintings and murals that transform fruit into its own unique world. Walking the line between realism and idealism, these are not your traditional still life paintings. Although I was creative and loved drawing when I was young, I didn't start pursuing art until my first year at New College of Florida. I thought I would study history, maybe lit or political science, but a roommate thought it would be fun to take an intensive art course together with a visiting professor from UGA. It completely changed my life. I absolutely fell in love with making art. I started taking more and more art classes and my painting professor started asking to exhibit some of my paintings in little exhibitions on campus, which led to little and then bigger exhibitions off of campus. And it eventually snowballed from there. I'm proud to say that my paintings are now collected and exhibited worldwide. I'm constantly inspired by farms and farmers markets, light and color, the human body, other artists and their work. There's this saying, when you're constantly looking for beauty and inspiration, you start to find it everywhere. And it's so true. If I didn't move to Atlanta in 2015, I don't think I would have started painting murals. I've exhibited in galleries for years, but I wanted to share my art with more people. So I took a chance and applied to the Stack Squares mural project in Cabbage Town. It was a wonderful, life-changing experience and so much fun. 
that pomegranate mural is gone, but I now have murals throughout the southeastern U.S. Atlanta is the best place to be a professional artist. It's competitive, but not cutthroat. There are tons of opportunities, so there's room for everyone to be successful. And the art community itself is wonderful, diverse, and very supportive. Cat Eye Creative, Mint, ABV Gallery, White Space, and Free Market Gallery usually have great exhibitions featuring amazing artists, many of them local. The High Museum is always a fun time. I enjoy going over to Marietta to see the new art at the Loft and around Marietta Square. I also love getting outside and finding public art. It's nearly everywhere in Metro Atlanta, so you don't need to look too hard. If you want to get outside, you can find my peach mural in downtown Marietta and my pomegranate mural on Path 400 in Buckhead. My full body of work is at AngelaFaustina.com. Coming up, City Lights producer Summer Evans catches up with Atlanta street photographer Brandon May. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. There are a lot of architecturally unique buildings here in Atlanta. We've got the Weston Peachtree Plaza, the King and Queen buildings, the Atlanta Marriott Marquis, the list goes on and on. Well, Atlanta street photographer Brandon May captures these buildings and the people who walk alongside them in his work. His photographs have been featured in exhibitions internationally, and when Brandon joined City Lights producer Summer Evans to talk about his work, she began by asking him how he first got into photography. I started photography around the age of 12. My, my dad, he was really in, into photography. He really got me started in it. I know that, I, that he had a camera that, that he really loved. I think it was a Olympus camera, like a 35 millimeter. He let me use it a few times. I believe that I broke it from what I can remember, but that's pretty much where I, where I got my start was with my dad and he was really into it. So I just continued to take pictures throughout my life and here I am. And so did he teach you how to develop in a dark room film photography? He went over the steps with me, but I really didn't learn that until I got to, to high school. And when I actually took like a, a traditional photography class and my school was lucky enough to have a dark room but we were able to, to do that and develop our own film. And so I learned that process a little bit later, maybe like four or five years later. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And learning darkroom photography can really help you learn about shadows and lighting mm -hmm. and everything because it's in black and white, you know, Yeah, exactly. to tell a story is a little bit more difficult than with color. Exactly. It's a, it's a steep learning curve. Very steep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm assuming that you've switched over entirely to digital now. Yeah, I, I made that switch probably maybe like a year after I learned how to do the darkroom thing. <laughs> I was ready for like a more modern take on it. And I didn't have access to a darkroom like during the summers. So I really did have to make that switch to, to digital photography. What I do enjoy about your photographs is the fact that even though it's shot with a digital camera, there's still an element of film, like a graininess. And most of your photographs are in black and white. Mm hmm is there a reason why you like to create your photographs to look black and white rather than with color? Well, black and white is, in my opinion, a little bit a little bit more forgiving. You can miss your your shutter speed or your ISO can be off, but you can still get a, a great a great image out of it. And also, like you can get really deep deep and dark blacks, 
and shadows using black and white. But mostly I, I think I'm drawn to black and white and, and the grain uh, because of Gordon Parks and, and Bernice Abbott and photographers that I, um, that I look up to, you know, because they got started in 35 millimeter film um, and that's kind of grainy. So maybe um, part of me is just trying to emulate them in, in their work. For those unfamiliar with those photographers like Gordon Parks and Louis Mendez, can you describe their work and how it inspired yours? Well, Gordon Parks, he really does draw you in into like his into his images. He, he tells a story from from start to finish. If you look at the subjects that he he takes pictures of, they're usually black people throughout the South. So you see in a lot of his images, you see like just the everyday life, but you also see like the pain and the struggle of just the everyday life of being a black person. I try to bring that into my photography. Street photography is a little bit more difficult to do that in, but I think because of how he frames these stories and how he frames these subjects in, in the picture, he paints a very good picture or an accurate picture of what maybe they're, they're thinking or what they're going, they're going through in their day. He's really been pretty influential in my work. And how do you showcase that in your street photography? Because I noticed that when you are shooting a lot of people, their faces are kind of covered either by shadows or their hat, their hoodie. Why do you first off like to hide their identities, but how do you also emulate the works that Gordon Parks did? I shoot kind of dark because I really do like the, the dark element and the, the, the mystery of the subject. And I also kind of want to give them a little bit of privacy. Um, maybe not want their, their photo just online like that. So you can't really tell who they are. And Gordon Parks, he, he really didn't have that kind of element in his, in his work. Louis Mendez has some of that going for him in his work. And I think I, I draw on that and try to emulate that with, with my work. Mm -hmm. With your street photography, it really does make you feel like you're a fly on the wall. You yeah. know, these people are passing alongside the buildings and you're just kind of like mysteriously in the background because no one's looking into the camera. They're all kind of just going about their, their daily lives on the streets of Atlanta. Exactly. Exactly. And that's what I, exactly what I, I want them to do. I don't want to like interrupt their day or interrupt whatever they're doing. I, I just want to capture a frame or a scene and, and let them go about their, whatever they're going to do and try not to disturb whatever they're doing. Yeah. Have you ever come across someone that you have photographed on the street and been like, hey, I took this picture of you. Do you want to check it out? Usually if, if a person stops me and says like, what are you doing? Or why are you taking a picture of me? I usually tell them, you know, I'm a street photographer. Um, this is what I do. And I give them my card. I let them check out my Instagram. And I, I always send them a picture of the picture that I, that I've taken of them via email so they can have that and know that like it, it's art and it's not like anything else but art. Every time that happens, they're usually very receptive and very happy to see the final product, even buy more prints of mine, which is pretty exciting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really cool. So on top of doing street photography, you also photograph the architecture of Atlanta and your work looks very futuristic the way that you photograph the buildings. It's like alien-esque and the symmetry is just so beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. What is it about Atlanta's buildings that enamored you to photograph them? Growing up here, I think I seen these buildings and, and the skyline throughout my entire life. And I maybe have like a connection to them personally that like I kind of know them and I kind of like feel like whatever tone they, they kind of put out. And I think that's just because I've, I've just seen these buildings and I've walked past them. I've, you know, driven past them throughout my entire, my entire life. 
I do feel like I have a connection to them and having a, a better idea of how they're going to look in, in the sunlight, how they're going to look at nighttime, how shadows will cast off of one building onto another. It's just something that I've, I've just noticed my entire life, even before I started taking pictures. I just, I've seen these, seen how the, how the, the city is, is set up and, and how the buildings kind of align with each other. How often will you go out exploring in the streets shooting? I would like to go every day. For the most part, I do get out in the morning, Monday through Friday. After a job I sent off at, at school, I'm usually headed downtown to get some some frames and get some shots. So um, I spend maybe four or five days a week downtown for a few hours shooting. And that way I can get a consistent work ethic and, and try to see where the light's going to be and how it interacts with this building. And are there a lot of people coming out of out of buildings at this time, time of the day, if it's like rush hour or something like that. So as much as I can, um, I would like to get down there and shoot. Do you ever go exploring different parts of the city or do you kind of go back to the same buildings and just try to look at them in a different light or angle when in I, order to capture them? Yeah, when I when I first started out, I would I would go to like over by Georgia State and shoot. Um, and then I would, like the next day I would go like maybe down like Little Five. At this point in my career, I kind of, just know where I want to go. So like I might just stay on one corner for a couple of hours and I keep returning to that corner at different times of the day um, just to see what it looks like and see the people walking by and see how they interact with the buildings at, in the morning or um, you know later in the day. So yeah, I do return to the same spot multiple times a week. I think people kind of get tired of seeing me <laughs> on the corner <laughs> every day doing the same thing. But, but it, I think it's I think that's the best way to, to really understand like how the light is going to flow through the city. And it's also a good way to like really work on your settings and understand how your camera works, which is returning to the same scene. I read that you left working at a small tech company in August of 2021 in order to pursue photography full time. Can you talk about why you decided to do that? Yeah, well, photography has always been in my life. Um, and I've always been told by my dad to like, you know, you should really just quit your job and do photography and, and really pursue that. And my wife has said the same thing over the years. I think not having the time to actually go out and shoot and really um, set my own hours in doing so really kind of pushed me to leave my job and, and to pursue photography. Also, it gives me a lot of a lot more time to spend with my family and spend with my kids, especially my son, who you know, has been diagnosed with autism it's just a little bit more freedom to spend my time the way that I, I like to spend it. Mm -hmm. And as I was exploring your Instagram, I saw these beautiful photographs of your three kids. Yeah. Um, the twins are boy and girl, Jackson and Ruby. Um, and our oldest is Isabella. She's, she's nine. Yeah. So I, I took a lot of pictures of them when I, like when they were first born and throughout their, their early childhood. And I still take a lot of pictures of them to this day. That's also another love of mine is, taking their portraits and um, taking pictures of them doing the silly things that they do throughout the day. I really do enjoy that. What is it like photographing them like kind of through their eyes? Because I noticed you don't just take these posed photographs of your children. It's really them, like you said, being silly or kind of exploring, looking up at the sky after they released a balloon. <laughs> How do you like reflect what they're looking at through their eyes? I guess I just, I just keep shooting. And I, I interact with them the best that I can while I'm shooting. And so they're always just in their own world, interacting with each other or other people. So I'm just, I'm just really just taking pictures of, of them and, and how they see the world. So like I, I try to get down on their level and, and get close to them and, 
and just see what they see. Yeah. Well, it's beautifully done. Thank I, you. <laughs> I, it makes me smile when I went through your Instagram. <laughs> Lastly, Brandon, what advice would you give to up and coming photographers who are looking to do street photography or architecture or even just shooting portraits of people? Always bring your camera. Don't stop shooting. Bring your camera everywhere you go. That's the best way. That's one of the ways that I've learned how to how to play with my settings and, and really get a, a full grasp and understanding of my camera. It's just always take it. Take it to church, take it to the grocery store, a hospital, school. Always take it with you. It should be connected to you like your wallet or your phone. You should always have it around your neck and be ready to shoot because you never know. I think the more you shoot, the more times you press your, your shutter button, the more experience you get each time. So you just have to have the discipline to bring it with you and be the one in the corner with a camera <laughs> and, be, and be willing and ready to shoot. Atlanta street photographer Brandon May. More information about May is on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights on WABE, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Monday at 11 a.m., Amy Ray of the Indigo Girls stops by ahead of her upcoming Sounds Like ATL hosting gig. Plus, author Vanessa Riley tells us about her new release, Sister Mother Warrior. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org. There you'll find a complete archive of interviews so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights executive producer and host is Lois Reitzes. Summer Evans is our producer and our engineer is Shelly Canavy. I'm senior producer Kim Drobes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow Lois on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thank you for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate and thanks.